them in the surrounding culture, there's going to be two opposite uh, groups that start to form. One is going to say, well, if the culture is moving this way, let's move with it. Let's embrace the culture, let's fit in, let's blend, and let's go along with the flow. And there's always then another group of people who says, no, tradition (laughs) is where we're going to stake our claim and where we're going to find our identity. And the same thing is true in Jesus' day. This depicts a a Jewish family and a Jewish group of people in pre-revolutionary Russia, you know, in the early 1900s, into the 1800s. And they are exalting tradition because it's a way of maintaining their culture and to feel safe in the midst of a culture which is dangerous and which is changing rapidly before their very eyes. And in Jesus' day, the same thing was happening with the Jewish people. Just as in Anatevka in the, in the 1900s, so in Judea in the, uh, you know, the 10s and the 20s and the 30s A.D., uh, the Jewish people, as they have always been all over the, the world, wherever they have, they have ever been, they have been an embattled group of people. And in Jesus' day, there were a group of folks who were known as the Pharisees. And then you had the, another group called the Herodians. And the Herodians were the go-along to get along, you know, accommodate to the culture, maintain Judaism as an ethnicity, but not as a culture and a faith. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that Jesus is going to encounter here this morning in Mark are of this group, tradition. Tradition is how we maintain our identity. Tradition is what tells us who we are. Tradition is how we know how to behave and act and eat and work and live. Tradition is very important. And there's value in tradition, right? I mean, how many of you have been to to like a modern wedding as opposed to a traditional wedding right where or a couple where the couple writes their own vows whenever a couple tells me that as a pastor I, I try to encourage them away from that and I say you know there's a reason that the traditional vows are the traditional vows because not all of us are Shakespeare okay <laughs> and you know there's value in tradition right and some things are are worth holding on to even when the culture ships there are things that, are, that ought to stay fixed and that are worth holding on to. But Jesus is going to be confronted by a group of people who have made tradition equivalent to the Word of God. And it's not. And Jesus is going to tell them that it's not. So if you have your Bible, find Mark chapter 7. And we're going to look at the first 23 verses here, Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing according to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. 
So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might have otherwise received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the house and left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Now, the text starts off with a conflict between Jesus and a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law. Um... And Jesus and his disciples. On the one hand, you've got the very religious, the official religious uh, from Jerusalem who have come down. Now, within Judaism, the idea was that the nearer you were to Jerusalem, the more holy you were. So if you lived in Jerusalem, you were in proximity to the Lord's temple, and therefore you were more sanctified than those who merely lived in Judea. And if you were from Galilee, where, um, where Jesus was from, I, I guess the closest thing you could say is that, morally speaking, you looked to the Jews in Jerusalem like a redneck, okay? And they thought that, okay, well, the, uh, those people up in Galilee, they're, they're, they're Jews maybe, but they're far away from God. And we, who live in Jerusalem, are among the holy now, does geography have an effect on your relationship with God? No. But nonetheless, this was their tradition. This is what they believed. And they had come from uh, Jerusalem, the holy guys had come from Jerusalem to check out Jesus. And they were watching him, and they're, and, and they're wanting to see what is Jesus going to do. And they see his disciples come in from the marketplace, because where have they just been? In the marketplace, remember? Jesus is healing in Gennesaret, and there's so many people that want to get healed, they go to the biggest open area they can find, which is the marketplace, and they lay these people out, and they say, well, if we can just touch Jesus' cloak, then somehow we'll, we'll be able to be healed. And people were. 
And so they come in from the marketplace, and they've been at this all day, and they've been up all night, and so they're hungry. And so when the food comes, they don't wash their hands. They just start eating. Uh Uh-oh. Problem. Because the Pharisees taught, according to the tradition of the elders, which they held to be equivalent to Scripture, that you did not eat with unwashed hands. And they kept big stone jars, religious Jews kept big stone jars uh, inside the house, and you would take a handful of that water and just wash the, the funk off of your hands. Because the idea was that, well, if you're out in the marketplace, you're going to run into people who are unclean morally. Because, after all, some of the people selling stuff in the marketplace would be Gentiles. They wouldn't even be Jews. And there's dirt and all that, and mm, we, we want to get clean. Okay, nothing wrong with washing your hands, by the way, before you eat. Still a good idea, all right? <laughs> okay, um, nothing wrong with washing the kettles and cups and, and saucers and all that. Okay, nothing wrong with that. But is it the command of God? No. And they hold Jesus responsible because he is the, he is the rabbi. And whatever the disciples do, the rabbi is responsible for. Just as if your kid is a minor and he breaks the law, the police come to you, right? Uh, And they're holding you responsible. Now, we also, in our society, hold him responsible, but we're holding you ultimately responsible as the parent, right? If your kid breaks a window with a baseball in your neighborhood... Uh, what is he going to do? Break his piggy bank to pay the window? No, they're going to come to you as the parent. Same deal with, with a rabbi and his disciples. They come to Jesus and they say, how come your disciples don't obey the tradition of the elders and they eat with unwashed hands? In other words, don't you know that that, that makes them unclean before God? They're unclean, Jesus. Now, does the condition of your hands have anything to do with the condition of you as a person? No. Um, you know, is, is having an office job a more moral occupation than, having, than being a transmission specialist? No. One of you is going to have cleaner hands, probably. But they come to Jesus and they ask him this question. Um. And um, and Jesus is going to respond, okay? He's going to say that, look, tradition is not all you think it is. Uh, verse, verse, uh, verse 6 here, pick up in verse 6. Notice what he does not say. He does not give a direct answer to their question about dirty hands. He doesn't start by saying, well, you see, my disciples were out in the marketplace, and they were healing people, and they don't always wash before they eat. And it really is okay that they don't wash before they eat because the law doesn't specifically say that they have to. And I know you think that the tradition of the elders is really important, but it's really not all that important, blah, 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 blah. Okay, he doesn't do all that. He starts off quoting Isaiah the prophet. And he says, Isaiah was right about you, you hypocrites. When he said, these people honor me with their lips, 
but their hearts are far from me. They're, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. He is saying, look here, guys. You may think tradition is really important, but between that and obeying the direct command of God, there's no comparison. And you are just like the people that Isaiah was speaking to and condemned. Now, this is a slap. Because the people that Isaiah preached to Within a few years after Isaiah's lifetime, the northern kingdom got carted off into exile because they worshipped God on the outside, but at least to all appearances, and they would call it worshipping God. But in reality, they worshipped idols and were real interested in that and not at all interested in worshipping God. And so God carted the northern kingdom off into slavery in Assyria. And then within just a couple of hundred years after that, in 586 B.C., uh, the southern kingdom got carted off to Babylon. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You are just like the people were in, Is in Isaiah's day. Where there's this wonderful external show of worshiping God, but in reality there's nothing real that underlies it. You have an oral, for a religious Jew, this is about the most offensive thing you could possibly say. Because when the Jews came back from exile, they were determined they were going to obey the law. And in fact, they were going to obey the law better than the law even specifically said. And so they developed a tradition about how to interpret the law so that you didn't violate, not only did you not violate the law, but you didn't violate any of the law's that we built as a fence around the law to keep us from transgressing the law. <laughs> okay. So if it was like, well, you're not to do any work on the Sabbath. That's what the law said. And they'd say, well, we need to define what work is. How much work can you do? Can you heat up a sandwich in the microwave? I'm serious. Is that work or is that not work? Okay. Or do you have to make peanut butter and jelly the night before? And then if you make it the night before, can you put it in the Ziploc to keep it fresh? Or when you open the Ziploc, is that work? I'm serious, okay? They had laws that were that level of specific because they wanted to obey the law. And so this is about the most offensive thing you could say to somebody is that you honor God externally, but internally you don't honor God. Because they're going, why are we going through all this? We're going through all this to honor God. And he says, no, you're not. You want to appear to be righteous without actually being righteous. Incidentally, is that still possible? Is it still possible to look really good on the outside to all appearances and internally have a heart which is in rebellion against God? Is that still possible? Yes. I've done it. I bet some of you have done it. Where you go to church and you pull up and everybody's fighting in the car <laughs> on the way here, you know, and then... And then you park and you shut the door and you go, 
Okay, now we're going to get in. Now everybody smile. Right? And everything looks, to all appearance, fine. But you've been going at it hammering tongs and everybody's mad (laughs) uh, on the way here. Right? But we want to appear to be righteous. Even if we're not actually righteous in our own heart. Right? Is it possible to go beyond what the law even says in terms of obeying God and not actually love God himself? Yes. Possible. Um, It's possible to be very much like a kid who obeys their mom and dad. And some of you who are parents have experienced this. I've experienced this as a parent. Where you have a kid that you give instruction to and they obey on the outside but inside they are plotting for the day when their escape is going to be made (laughs) and i'm going to get free from all of the restrictions of mom and dad right or you've had an employee like that who obeys but grudgingly and not with any joy and not with any um real heart in it and it's possible to obey god exactly like that And he says, that's what you're doing. Uh, Jesus knows that men's hearts are generally so hardened toward God and the things of God that they will not admit to this. So when Jesus says, you honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from him, that they're not going to go, you're right. (laughs) Shazam. Okay. And so he gives them an example. He says, let me give you an example of what you do and how you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. He says this, he says, you have a fine way of setting aside the command of God in order to observe your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. Now, this is serious. This is serious, right? Honor your father and mother, part of, the fir- part of the first ten commandments that came down off the mountain from God. And the law prescribed the penalty that if you were a rebellious child who refused to honor his father or mother, you were to be taken before the elders of the city outside the gate and they were to stone you. Serious. Okay? That was the law of God. Does God care about obedience to parents? Yes. Does God care about honoring your father and mother? Yes. Okay? Um, God cares about that. And Jesus says, God still cares about that. He says, but what you do is you say this. If a man makes a vow to give all of his stuff to God under what was called Corban, then you don't allow him to help out his father or mother anymore. And this is the way this worked. This was a slick deal, okay? What you would do is you would go before the religious leaders of your community, and you would say, all of my possessions I now devote to God. They are Corban, okay? But you didn't have to actually give them up to God and to the service of God until you yourself were dead. So you got to still have them, and enjoy them, and uh, use them to feed yourself, and to shelter yourself, and all of that. But you just couldn't use them to 
help anybody else outside of your family. You know, if you were married, you could you could use the, your resources to provide for your wife and your children. But, you know, a guest who came to your home, I'm sorry, you're out. Okay, uh, my house is Corban. You know, tough break, <laughs> right? And then when you died, it, it was actually turned over to the priesthood uh, for their use, and, and a lot of times it'd be sold, and the money then used to carry on the worship in the temple, okay? Now, does that... Now, understand, God's plan... God's plan for how parents are to be taken care of when they're old is for their kids to take care of them, okay? This is part of that honor your father and mother thing, right? One of the reasons it's good to have a lot of children because hopefully one of them will become rich, right? (laughs) And they can support you in your old age, right? If not, if you have four or five um, together, maybe they can sustain something of a living for you, right? Uh, there is no social security, biblically speaking. Okay? Uh, the social security that you had in those days was your children. And it was the job of your children as a, as a religious duty, not just as a, as a you know, tradition, but as a religious duty to take care of your, your parents. But this tradition allowed you to avoid doing that. And so there were a lot of people who would say, well, you know what? I don't really want to take care of mom and dad. So I'll just devote my stuff to God. I'll still get to use it. And I'll still get to do what I want to do. And mom and dad, they're on their own. Is that in accordance with what the law said? Jesus says, no, that is not in accordance with what the law says. In fact, he says, this is just one example. You do a lot of things like that. And um, he goes on to speak in what he calls a parable. And parable doesn't always mean story with a point. It can also be used uh, in the Gospels to mean mysterious saying or something hard to understand. And um, he says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing that goes inside, nothing, nothing outside a man makes him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of him that makes him unclean. In other words, um, when you eat, and, the, and by the way, this is a day prior to silverware, Okay. So people ate, as they do around most of the world, with their hands. And so whatever was on your hands is going in your mouth. And if it's dirt or whatever, it's going in your mouth. Jesus says that nothing that goes into your body from outside makes you unclean. What's he mean by unclean? He doesn't mean dirty. He means morally dirty. But it's what comes out of you that makes you unclean, that makes you morally dirty. And he doesn't mean out of your digestive system. And they, But the disciples are confused, as maybe some of you are. And so they get him off to the side. They get him away from the crowd, and they go, uh, okay, chief, explain. And he says, don't you understand? Are you still so dull? 
don't you get that what comes into a person can't make him unclean. It doesn't go into his heart. It goes into his stomach. Is the stomach a moral actor? No. Okay. Is it uh, is is there a moral difference between eating Twinkies and uh, and eating chicken? No, not a moral difference. There's a health difference, maybe, uh, but there's no moral difference, and there's no moral impact on your eating, according to Jesus. And Mark kind of has a little parenthetical aside to remind his readers: Look, in saying this, Jesus is making every food clean. Thank goodness, right? Praise God for that one, right? Because I like ribs and lobster and shrimp and, and oysters and this kind of stuff, right? Under the Jewish law, you couldn't eat it. But praise God for a change in the rules, right? Bring on the bacon, all right? Um, but, um, but Jesus declares all foods clean, but that's not the point. What he's saying is food is not a moral activity, how you eat is not moral or immoral. What, you, what goes into your body is not what makes you clean or unclean. It's what comes out of your heart that makes you clean or unclean. He says, for what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, not, their, not the organ that pumps blood, out of the immaterial part of you, the part of you that's the real you, you know, when you go to see the psychiatrist and he says, we're here to look for the real you. And you want to say, well, what if the real me is out looking for the real you and the real me is the psychiatrist and you owe me $50? But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but the part of you that is the real you is your heart, okay? The part of you which will survive the death of your body. Jesus says it's out of that part of you that, may, that determines whether you are morally clean or morally dirty. Dirty hands is not the issue. Dirty hearts is the issue. And he says this out of a man's heart, out of a person's heart, is where moral uncleanness comes from. And he gives a list of examples. First one, evil thoughts. So if you have a sinful thought, where did that come from? From you. Does Satan tempt us to think and to do certain things? Yes. But why, does that, why do we resonate with that? When the temptation comes, why, does there, why is there something within us that goes, ah, like a tuning fork towards sin? Because our hearts are evil, according to Jesus. And out of us come evil thoughts. And also out of us come evil behavior, Right? Uh, things like sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and lewdness and greed. And also evil speech expressed in malice and deceit and envy and slander, arrogance, folly. Right? So we're evil according to Jesus from start to finish in our speech, in our thoughts, in the what we do. Where does that come from? Out of a wicked heart. So if we want to transform the person, what do we have to do? All of us need a heart transplant, not a better set of rules to obey. Right? Um, 
This is not an exhaustive list. Our biggest problem is not what we do. It's not what we say. It's not what we think. It's why. It's because we all, as, uh, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, are born into the world as sinners, which means that we have within us a part of us that wants desperately to have nothing to do with God or His ways or His works or anything about Him. We want to rebel. We want to live our own life. We want to do our own thing in our own way, in our own time, according to our own schedule. And we, we think of ourselves as the sun rising and setting on us. And I am the most important thing in the universe. And God, well, maybe when I'm old and wrinkled and uh, too decrepit to do anything else, then I'll worship God. But not now. Incidentally, you never get that old. That somehow, without a heart transplant, worshiping God becomes a preoccupation of your life naturally. It doesn't. You have to have a new heart that comes in. And even if my behavior seems upright... Jesus says, I'm just trying to appear to be righteous. I'm not actually righteous. Now, um, you know what's, what's tough about this passage? Um, if you look at this, the list of stuff that comes out of your heart, almost everything on that list, and it's not an exhaustive list. Jesus has just given examples of sins that people are prone to. I can do almost all of these things mentally or verbally while appearing to be a very nice, upright, moral person. I can give every appearance of being righteous. I can give my money. I can obey the law, the law of Moses according to all of the requirements. You know, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't worshipped anybody besides God. I haven't made any idols, I haven't stolen, I haven't dishonored my father and mother, I've kept the Sabbath, I've done all this. And I can even keep all of the rabbinic requirements. I can go through all those thousands of laws and, and have a separate refrigerator even for milk and meat and all of this kind of stuff. I can do all of that. And I'll assure you that I can attend church, I can sing on the worship team, I can preach God's word, I can give money, I can serve on a ministry team, I can go on a mission trip, I can stay happily married, I can raise my children, I can be sure to wash my hands every time that I eat. I can do all of it and still be just as far away from God as these Pharisees. And so can you. And that scares me just a little <laughs> because I never want to be the person of whom God says, this man, this woman honors me with his lips or her lips, but his heart, her heart is far away from me and they worship me in vain. They have a name that they are a Christian, but they are not. They have a name that they are a church, but they're not. They honor me with their lips. They sing about me. They read my word. 
Uh, their people uh, serve people in my name, but in their hearts, they don't love me. In fact, they don't even know me. And that's what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees. So this morning, let's examine ourselves and just make sure that our hearts are drawing ever closer to God rather than pushing Him further away. Let me just ask a couple of of questions. First of all, some of you who are here in a group this size, I have to believe that there are some people who are here who are not Christian. That is, they have never personally accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, believed that He died on the cross for their sins and was raised from the dead that proved that He was God and that He would raise them from the dead as they trust in Him. If you've never done that, You may be simply a religious person who is not right with God. And I encourage you, with all of the love of Christ, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if if nothing has ever changed in your life as a result of your belief in Jesus Christ, let me ask you and encourage you to repent of your religiosity and find the real thing. Such that, so that your honor of God will not just be with your lips, but with your life and with your heart. Jesus asks us to come to him and to receive life. Not to try to earn it by keeping a list of stuff according to the tradition that we were handed down. He asks us to come and receive life. And it gives us a better technique for obeying God as we trust in God and we ask the Spirit to empower us and enable us to obey Him. And to obey Him, not because we're afraid of what might happen if we don't, but because we love God and we want to please Him. Because He has sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins, and out of our gratitude we say, Father, what can I do to serve You and give You honor? Because I love you. Now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, let me ask you, and this is probably the majority of you, let me ask you these questions. First of all, is there any sin in your life that you have not repented of? Is there any sin in your life of which you have not repented? Because if there is, then you may be here this morning and you may have given your money as the offering plate came on and as the worship team was up here, you probably sang. And as you're listening to God's word being preached and explained, you're taking it in and you've got your Bible open. But if you're sitting here with unrepented sin in your life, then your heart is far away from God even as you are near to his people and worshiping him. And if that's true, 1 John says this, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess, God is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sin, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will clean our heart, in other words, so that we are near to God rather than far away from Him. Let me ask you this. When you read your Bible, why do you read it? 
do you read it out of joy in knowing God through it or because you think you should? Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. Now that describes someone who loves God's word, who sees it as a delight. When you read your Bible, are you delighted by God's word or doing it because you think you should? When you pray, why do you pray? Do you pray because, well, Christians pray, so, and I'm a Christian, so I, I guess I should do this. Or because out of the depth of your heart, you cry out to your Father because you love Him and you want Him to answer and you want Him to be involved in your life and to say to Him, Father, this is what's going on today. And maybe it's big stuff, maybe it's small things, but this is what's going on today. When you pray, why do you pray? Out of tradition, out of discipline, or out of love and joy? Why do I come to church? Do I come to church because I grew up coming to church and this is what nice people do on Sunday morning? Instead of sleep in or go bowling or whatever it is people do when they're not at church. Why do I come? Do I come because, well, if I go, I might get something out of it? Because I might feel better emotionally having been? Because I like the other people who come? Is it out of a sense of religious obligation? Or is it because I love Jesus and I want to see him honored by me? I ask these questions, um, and as we think about them together, I, I, want, I want us all to understand very clearly that God's grace does extend to all of us. As before our salvation, so after our salvation, God's grace extends to all of us. And even as a pastor, I'll be the first to say there are days I don't feel like praying. There are days I don't feel like reading my Bible. There are Sundays I don't feel like preaching. Okay. Um, but if that is the normal pattern of your life, where you go, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to read your word. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to be with your people at church. <laughs> I don't want to confess my sin. Can I say to you with all the love of Christ that God's grace comes to you too and is coming to you right now and saying, repent and return to me. Do the things you did at first so that our serving God may be not out of duty or tradition or obligation, but out of joy and love and faithfulness. Let's, let's pray and let's ask.